Welcome to this episode of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. I mentioned briefly last week that I've been working on the Save Derby County campaign. I just wanted to let you know, as we enter possibly the final week of that, that we've been hosting various Twitter town hall evenings, which is where I speak almost like a radio show on the latest Save Derby County campaign updates. We've been having over a thousand people tune in each night. So if that's something that's of interest to you, do follow me on my Twitter page at Jimmy M. On today's episode, we've got one of the most interesting people in technology. You may have seen around London and various other cities in the United Kingdom and beyond, the 10-minute grocery delivery service has been expanding at rapid rates, with literally billions of pounds being poured into these services. This is where a biker will take your grocery delivery order and drop it to your door within 10 minutes from very small orders that can be done. Today's guest is Steve O'Hear. Now, Steve was a very prominent tech journalist at TechCrunch. He was the one that all startups wanted to speak to to write about their piece. Steve did it for over 10 years and was one of the first people to write about Monzo and Starling Bank and got exclusive after exclusive on major funding rounds. But just under a year ago, Steve decided to make the jump. He jumped to join Zap, which is one of these fast-growing delivery startups. He's joined as the VP of Strategy, and it's a fascinating conversation that we have in terms of how you go about trying to make a jump and a role like that, what led him to it. Steve is also disabled and so has therefore worked at home for a long time. And so getting his thoughts on that and how people and how the pandemic will shape us was very interesting, particularly in a career such as journalism, which is so based on contacts and getting that intelligence how Steve has been able to do that from home and fascinatingly talks about the the tipping point that he went through. So if you're an aspiring journalist, this is a great conversation. If you want to join a fast-growing startup in a strategy role like Steve, this has also got so many good nuggets in. It is one of the conversations that I have found most interesting doing Jimmy's Jobs and demonstrates how we are moving more towards interviewing people with different stories and and different types of of job as well so it's not just entrepreneurs and founders but it's also the people that are helping to support those i think you'll find it a fascinating conversation and i really hope you drop us a line with your thoughts on what you think about it and other interesting people that we could get in touch with we are at hello at jobs of the future.co before diving in i wanted to thank our headline partners the octopus group Octopus is one of Europe's largest and most active venture capital investors. Investing more than 200 million a year, it backs UK entrepreneurs at every stage of their journey. From ideas on a page right through to IPOs and has funded some of our nation's biggest success stories from Kazoo to Depop. Octopus was started 20 years ago in one of the co-founders' bedrooms with one phone line and a copy of the Yellow Pages. Now Octopus is one of the most powerful engine rooms of the UK entrepreneurial community and has backed 
and developed several unicorns themselves, including Octopus Energy. I am proud that Octopus have backed this podcast since the second series, and they are the reason we are now able to put such a professional show together. To hear more about what they do, it is worth checking out previous episodes with the founders Chris Hewlett, Simon Rogerson, or one of their venture partners on the future of health tech, Pooja Seeker. On to today's show. Steve, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thanks for having me. How would you define the job of journalist and what are the best routes to becoming one? So that's like, that's a huge question. I think, um, <laughs> especially in 2022, right? Yeah. Um, I think the job of journalist has changed, but also probably not changed at all. Um, I think it really depends what kind of journalism you're referring to. I think at its most basic, journalism is about kind of providing a record of the day. Um, you know, you, you often hear various publications described as the site of record or the publication of record. And then it's about sort of disseminating information and trying to make sense of of the news and what's happening um, to the service of readers, which is really important. Sometimes journalists forget that it is actually about the readers. Um, and then on a more sort of noble, high level, you know, it's about um, speaking truth to power, right? And that is the sort of more romantic, but also vital role of journalism. Um, and the way I always tell sort of young journalists to think about it or people that don't perhaps understand the media or are skeptical of the media, and we see that, don't we, a lot of sort of media skepticism in recent years, is that um, it's one really important part of democracy in terms of disseminating that information and asking the right questions and helping to provide, you know, much needed checks and balances, whether that be politically or industry, commercial or you know, other areas of, of society. So I guess that's how I think of it. And how has it changed in the last 10 years? Because in a way, you, you touch on it there. It, in, in some ways, it's not changed dramatically. It's about the readers. But so many of the tools and the communication methods that journalists use are different. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, probably the biggest change that isn't so welcome is that the business of media or business of news has been obviously heavily disrupted by the internet in the sense that now everybody expects their news to be free, to be, to be delivered free and that you don't have to pay for it. And that has slightly distorted um, the, the, the amount of resources that can go into news reporting and then into sort of investigative journalism. So I think that side's become hard in the sense of, to put really simply, journalists have less time to work on each individual story. Okay, so that changes the depth of coverage um, and also can skew the type of coverage because if you're going to spend longer on a story, you want it to reach more readers and that may slightly um, gamify what kind of stories you go after in the first place. Okay, so that's like a kind of, Tension that I think the media have been grappling with really since the the news consumption moved offline to online, right? Um, obviously, we're seeing paywalls and various subscription models help to counteract that. And I think there's room for different kinds of ways of funding journalism. But um, in all of my years in journalism, 
and it was almost predominantly on online, I never felt like that tension has ever been resolved. So that's sort of an open question. And then in terms of sort of news gathering and how you build sources, how you, um, how you attack certain information in terms of the use of data, all of that has changed, but arguably I think in, in, in quite a good way. So when I was a journalist, I worked predominantly from home. Um, because of my disability, I kind of had to, and I I definitely swapped, you know, that old kind of stereotype of, you know, shoe leather and being in the pub with, with kind of networking online, initially making a lot of use of Skype and instant messaging. And then when Twitter sort of blew up, was able to reach far, far more sources and be far more available and less aloof as a journalist. And thereby that creates a sort of virtual circle where sources come to you um, and yeah, and kind of built a virtual network predominantly off the back of Twitter, in all honesty. Um, and I would often go to, when I, occasionally when I would, not often, but when I would go to events in those early, early years of Twitter and when I was really establishing myself, every event I would go to, I would like work out who was going to be there, who I already knew um, via Twitter. So Twitter was my, was my, was my professional network versus, say, you might think of LinkedIn or something, um, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, I think it's that's really interesting. And, uh, yeah, I was, I was reminiscing the other day about tweet-ups. Do you remember when people used yeah, to host yeah. tweet-ups? <laughs> it was, it's a funny thing. But when we have a lot of aspiring journalists that, that listen to this show, so I think it's just to touch on when did that tipping point occur when people started coming to you? Because I think that's a really interesting um, object observation and and how do you go around sort of cultivating um online relationships through twitter can you give people some tips on that yeah sure so i mean it definitely took a few years for sources to come to me rather than me have to kind of go out and proactively try to make things happen so i think i would say to any aspiring journalist where they don't they sort of you know, they see other journalists breaking stories and they think somehow they've got some magic formula and maybe they themselves are not like clever enough to quite understand how to do it. It, it actually takes time, right? And the way to, to cultivate sources is, is astoundingly simple. It's actually to do good reporting and to write stuff that's smart, right? Because in the end, people want... Sources want to know that A, you can get a story over the line and B, you're going to do it justice. So the biggest way to attract sources is just through doing great work. And even though there's a catch 22 that you won't necessarily be able to uncover a piece of news that nobody wants uncovered without sources, you can still write intelligently and, and be tapped in. And also, I think the trick that I learned perhaps too late in my career is you don't even have to have the answers. There's a thing in journalism where if you just asked the right questions, the questions that perhaps everybody's thinking, but they're not saying, then you are invariably one step ahead of competitors. Um, which that sounds like really simple, but honestly, that was my biggest takeaway. You get a lot of credibility from just being the one who's willing to raise your head above the parapet and ask those questions. Yeah, not being afraid to ask the the simple and straightforward questions that's what genuinely what we try and do on this podcast so i think it's uh uh really interesting that you uh you kind of 
say that because particularly when so much of our lives are lived online it can that you sometimes have to give off that persona of of knowing everything and knowing more that you you do um so you must have been pitched at points such a huge amount of stories um and so on how did you kind of do due diligence i mean you talk there about um you know resources being stretched more and more in journalism and the media and at the same time over the last 10 years there's been this sort of plethora of startups that have kind of emerged and you must be there must have been a point where you were being pitched dozens a day i imagine probably how did you carry out that kind of due diligence and work out what was worth reporting on you know absolutely yeah no it did get dozens a day towards the end i think um so i want to take a step back because even though i was covering you know 25 30 startups a month at, at TechCrunch and was often the very first journalist to write about a new company. Some of those companies went on to become huge companies. I'm thinking companies like TransferWise, Deliveroo, Monzo in, in, in recent times, mm. you know, that went on to become household names. And I was lucky enough to be the first journalist often to write about those type of companies. I never thought of myself as the hit maker, right? It wasn't about like, if I cover the startup, you know, it's therefore they're going to become more successful. What I always tried to do was figure out is the problem they're trying to solve a problem that actually exists? That was one. Is the problem big enough that should they be successful, the company itself will become a very big and meaningful sized company? Um, and were the founders, did I get a sense of the founders were one of, if not the best people to potentially solve that problem? So that was the kind of, that was my way of analyzing an initial pitch around a brand new company, perhaps in a brand new industry or an industry that hadn't, hadn't yet been disrupted. Um, that said, if you go back and read most of my coverage, um, I don't think as a reader, you would come away thinking that I necessarily had a positive or a negative view of that company. What I always tried to do was tease out what the, um, what the problem they were trying to solve, what, what product market fit would look like and try to put as much of it in the words of the founders themselves or the, or the investors, often I interviewed venture capitalists as well, and then let the market and history be the judge, right? And what was fascinating is some of these companies, you know, pivoted, changed strategy, reinvented themselves. And, and again, it goes back to that earlier question about what is journalism and providing the kind of record of the day. And I think what, what my coverage did was fairly objectively teased out the right questions to, to bring that, that market information in a more transparent way that you could then use the reference later on when analyzing like the progress of an individual company. But also as I got more experienced and learned that these, some of these companies would go on to become huge companies, and it's huge kind of, you know, actual like cultural icons and, and change consumer behavior that it was also important to sometimes ask questions about where you're kind of thinking, well, hang on a minute, if this is really successful, what are the perhaps unintended consequences of that disruption? Where, where are the blind spots where founders are perhaps not thinking further enough ahead about how 
if they change an entire industry or help to encourage or, you know, um, like create new consumer behavior, like what are the knock-on effects for society as a whole or just, just the industry of which they're disrupting? And that neatly segues us on to talk about your current role but just be- before that to sort of round off this sort of journalistic piece uh, you mentioned a couple of your kind of famous stories there um are, are there any others that kind of particularly stick out as successful companies or, or perhaps companies that that didn't go on that you thought oh this you know that this is guaranteed well not guaranteed to be a success but perhaps some startups that didn't quite make it yeah, I mean, I, there are plenty of, I mean, there's probably, I never went back and looked, but, you know, there's sort of statistics, what, one in, one in 10 startups makes, makes it. Um, there would be lots of companies that I covered super early that didn't go on to necessarily get past Series A, Series B funding, or they couldn't quite find product market fit, meaning that, you know, even though customers would tell them they loved the product, there certainly weren't enough customers in, in numbers to be meaningful um but i think it again it was never about like are they going to be successful or not for me it was much more about kind of ensuring that what they were the problem they were trying to solve and how they would solve it by really teasing that out properly in the early coverage it kind of helps the market but also then society as a whole because i think when you have that dissemination of intent and then how it's going um, in a space that is all about innovation, then having those ideas and those discussions in the public domain, I always felt that would help move the needle on innovation and therefore progress. And I guess if you believe that technology has a role to play in sort of progressive, you know, I don't even call it politics, society, which I do, then having that out in the open is better, isn't it? for not just the market itself, but for society as a whole. So I think the failures were as important as it's the successes. And certainly I did do a few pieces at TechCrunch where I actually delved into like what is failure in terms of doing a kind of post-mortem for some of those companies. But I don't think there's enough of that actually in tech journalism. I think it's, yeah. it's, it's very nuanced and difficult to get founders and people involved to talk openly about failure not for fear of not being funded next time, but honestly, just on a personal level, like psychologically, when you're a founder um, or early employees and you put so much of your, you know, emotional investment into something that doesn't ultimately pan out, like I don't think the first instinct is to phone me up as much as I'm a, I'm a nice person um, to, tell me, to tell me why and how it all went wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think, that's, I think that's true. I think even actually it's quite interesting I was chatting to a successful entrepreneur who'd had an exit the other day and it was it was over a year ago and he sort of said he's only really ready to talk about it now and that was a success but you know you just you have so much emotion involved in it that it's you know it, it, it becomes it becomes so much a part of you that it can be difficult to disentangle it or and look at it objectively um yeah no absolutely i remember um, when i did my when i did my startup and it didn't pan out so well I remember after I left, I went and had coffee with a pretty successful entrepreneur who had just exited or recent, no, I think a year later exited their company for, for a really decent, um, decent result. And I said to him, I was like, my company didn't really pan out well. 
like, you know, it doesn't feel great. And he said, I don't envy the day I sell my company because I'm not sure I could ever be as successful again. I, it might just be a fluke. <laughs> and that, that definitely made me feel better. That definitely kind of, there's a lot of, I don't want to say luck, but it's about timing. Yeah. And it's about the stars aligning. Um, but yeah, definitely there's not enough talk about what happens after the company fails. Why? What were the dynamics? But in the end, as I said, as a journalist, I just, I enjoyed having that retro of the day approach so people could look back and kind of come to their own conclusions. Yeah. No, it's a fascinating way of looking at it. Just under a year ago, you made the decision to kind of leave journalism and join one of the hottest sectors out there, online grocery delivery, um, and you joined Zap as kind of vice president of strategy. So there's there's two questions here, which is what is strategy and what is a vice president? <laughs> so I'll do this easy one first. A vice <laughs> president just, just means I'm part of the leadership team. Okay. Right, which is which is great. So you know you have the founders and then the rest of the leadership team. So that's that's um that's what a vice president is at a tech startup, as um yeah as grandiose as that title sounds. <laughs> um, and no, look, my my role at, at Zap is to work directly with the founders to ensure that our our business goal, which is to become the most customer focused, um, on demand convenience brand in 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 the sector and beyond so that's about making sure that all of our decisions always put the customer at their heart and, and if in doubt always think what does this mean for customers um and then ensure that 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 goal aligns with our our principles in the company so things around sustainability things around ethical employment um are, are things where i i have quite a lot of um impact and influence and day to day that means I'm involved in anything from helping to manage the comms internally externally um the head of sustainability reports directly to me um I sit in tons of meetings ranging from product I do a lot around hiring make sure we bring the right people in and also a lot of stuff around our culture our company culture so that's like kind of thinking around how do we ensure that we're doing the right thing for both our customers and our people and also balancing that thing that all startups or scale-ups have to do which is what do we need to do today for 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 survival that's the short-term thinking and what do we need to do to ensure that we're investing for the long term so we can build a sustainable company that stays true to our principles in every sense of the word in terms of sustainability so financially sustainable and sustainable in terms of our, our our principles. On that cultural point, you're you're growing so fast. Talk us through the kind of growth of what's happened over last year. You know, company so recently founded, raising lots of money. I mean, there's so much going on. So talk us through that and how you keep that that culture um, the way that you and the founders want it. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we've. Um... We've grown from like one uh, Zap store, so one micro fulfillment centre delivering to one neighbourhood in London. So I think we're over we're dozens of stores now. I don't know what the, the number is right this minute. I think it's like probably around thirty. Um, and we're we're 
grown massively in London. And we're also really, really big in places like Amsterdam. Um, we have grown a headcount, I think, to around 2,000, including riders and store workers, um, as you said, in a space of a year, right? And what that means is when it's adding lots of people and building technology and, and infrastructure to support that, it obviously means like putting in processes and a lot of kind of internal sort of documentation and the way we design everything from how we manage meetings to how we collaborate to the author. I mean, it's actually, I found all that really eye-opening going from journalism into a company that's grown as fast as this is it really is a huge challenge about how you essentially scale the founders. Okay, that's the essence yeah. of building a company. The founders, in this case, they're two individuals and they, and they have a great complementary skill set. But there's a sort of an, an idea that for every new hire, you are scaling that founder vision. And even though it's definitely a team at Zap and the founders often talk about hum how humble they are about the kind of talent they've been able to recruit and attract to join our mission, it's just interesting watching an organization grow where you're scaling that vision and that strategy, cascading all the way down to, to employees at every level. And it's, it definitely is a huge challenge about how do you embed that culture? How does it evolve um, to support a company as it starts to serve, you know, thousands and thousands of customers? And even across different geographies, that's the other challenge. Right, we're now an international company, which is also sort of interesting for a company that like is a year old, right? Yeah, um, and I, we ask everyone that comes on the show, just because I'm always fascinated by branding and naming where the name zap comes from i mean this is probably one of the more simpler and, and straightforward um branding <laughs> names i imagine but i will ask it anyway <laughs> it's funny so i don't really have a i know you just i think you had olio on recently and they had a great yeah. answer to this, this question i literally don't have an answer except for i guess zap conjures up you know something fun spontaneous and I guess the fact that we deliver within 20 minutes is sort of, is captured in, 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 the, in the name. Um, I like it because it's pretty memorable and it can be, I think, of, you know, you can zap something. So that has that kind of test, could it become um, used in that way in sort of everyday language? But um, as you say, we play in the on-demand grocery space. We're all about convenience retail. So for us, we, when, you want, when you want to zap something, is when you need something either kind of urgent need or spontaneous when you sort of want to live in the moment and life gets in the way. So I think it, I think it works pretty well. I, I agree. In my household growing up, we used to call the remote control the, the zapper. So it, uh, it resonates with me. I, I totally, <laughs> totally get it. And talk to us about why you moved to this um, company, because there must have been, you know, you said you were, the most in-demand journalist in the technology sector in the UK. There must have been a plethora of options for you. And I get the sense that this is a very kind of personal mission for you, but would love to hear why it was Zap that stood out for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I'd, so I'd been at TechCrunch um, steadfastly traveling European early stage startups for, in total, I did about just over 10 years at TechCrunch but I left to do my own startup when I came back. So in, in the final round there, 
I was there for about eight and a half years. And, you know, like a lot of people, when the pandemic struck, you know, it kind of made me question, you know, where I was at in my career, my life, but also because of my disability, I've been having to shield um, the entire time. So I think of two years of shielding, which is basically like more or less not leaving the house and being very careful about social visits, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I think when something like that happens in your life, not only do you, do you start to think about the bigger picture because of the pandemic as a whole, but on a sort of more day-to-day individual level, I realize, well, if, if I'm losing a lot of my social life and work then even becomes even more of my life, like, am I really enjoying, am I excited, am I energized by what I was doing? And even though I loved journalism and I'd reached, I mean, you're too kind, but I'd reached quite a high level within the sector I covered, like it still had started to become quite repetitive. And, you know, I love like winning and getting stoops and beating up some of my competitors. But, in, you know, in the end, like doing that over and over again, it's like a bit of an adrenaline rush, but it, it started to feel a little bit um, formulae and just, I guess, the highs weren't quite as high as, yeah. as they used to be. Um, and so I, I thought, you know what, I'm ready for a change. And then sort of alongside that, everybody had moved to remote working. And so one of the biggest barriers to me changing uh, jobs or let alone careers was my need to work from home because because of my disability, like traveling around London, it's just, it's just a whole load of, a load of hassle and I can manage my disability and maximize my output by being, you know, set up in my own house and very comfortable with the support that I need. Right. So the world suddenly becomes flatter with the pandemic and everyone's like remote working is, is fine. And suddenly, you know, employers and bosses are willing to let go and trust their employees. Right. So that happened. Um, and I decided to cash in on it. And so I started looking around what was available. I had interest to join another publication and help mentor the next generation of journalists. And that was like super exciting and attractive. And I also had some talks about possibly joining um, a venture capital firm. Um, and then I remember I was trying to scoop Zap's funding news. That was the fun part. I wanted to be like I always was the first journalist to write about this company. And I'd known the founder, Navid, for years because I covered his previous startup that wasn't, wasn't so successful. Um, and we stayed in touch. And I was like, I was like, look, Nav, I really want to run the news. I know your company exists. I, I, know, I know about the funding. Um, and by the way, like, I want to get this done quickly because I, I think I'm going to leave TechCrunch. And he said, why don't you come and join our team? And I was like, okay, that's great. But what would I do, right? Like, what the hell is a journalist going to do at a company like that? And we started having amazing conversations, unraveling what they were trying to do and seeing if we aligned on, on the strategy and, and then trying to figure out where I could make the most impact. And to his credit and to, to Joe Zapp's other um, co-founder who I met with, um, they just came up with the, with the perfect role and they made all sorts of assurances about my ability to work from home, manage my own diary, keep that balance of trying to make sure I can stay super productive um, and engaged while managing my, my particular needs around my disability and huge amount of trust on both sides, right? Because it's very easy to say that it's fine if you do X, Y, and Z, but in practice, when you get there, you just don't know. And luckily, it's, it's panned out absolutely amazingly so far. And everybody, everybody's been true to their word and 
I think it's probably the best career decision that I've, I've made so far. So like, yeah, that's the story. It's another pandemic. It's, yeah. It's, <laughs> life, oh, life affirming. And it's, it, it's, well, it's great to hear because it must have been hard. The, the kind of, you know, I think everyone had a challenging pandemic, um, but not being able to, to go out and, and so on must, uh, yeah, like I say, must have been a, a huge challenge. And and what just, I mean, yeah, we're sort of two years into this kind of experiment of working from home and remotely for those professions that allow it as well. What, I mean, what tips do you have for, for people? Cause like you say, you've, you've done it a lot longer. You know, I sometimes think I've got it cracked two years on, but then there are other times when I still feel I, I, I really haven't got this sorted in my head yet what what are your learnings over doing it for such a long period so i used to have this theory that there was those that could work from home and those that couldn't yeah Um, but but the pandemic proved that actually push comes to shove most people can and of course you know i've been doing like you said for, for for ages i mean probably 20 years in all honesty maybe longer and the tools and you know, and the software has come a long way to support remote collaboration. And in the end, when people talk about remote working, the bit they're always most unsure of is will it kill creativity and collaboration? Yeah. And I think the answer is no. But of course, people get their energy from different kinds of social settings, right? So there are people that feel very energized by being in the same room, maybe in more noisy environments. There are people that can't stand working in open plan offices, right? So I think my takeaway is that let's let's get rid of this one-size-fits-all approach, right? Let's keep improving the tools to allow different modes of working and different ways of collaborating, be it remote or in-person or hybrid. Um, and and also, that's the way we approach it as Zap, because we're now a hybrid company. We have a great HG, but people don't necessarily go there every day of the week um, and I think it's even designed that way that the presumption is that most people will continue to work remotely for at least some of their week right and it gets back to this idea and I love this idea and this is how Zap approached employer me but also how we now try to distill it right across the company culture which is how do you set people up for success so in other words flip it around not like how does the employee make the company successful but how does the company make the employee set up to succeed? Because if they succeed, the company will succeed too. And I think um, it's so I'm sort of going around about how's the way of saying it. It's more of a mindset, right? Yeah. Which is if you if you set people up for success and you support different ways of working, including helping people to become better at working remotely as well as in person, and accept that it isn't a one size fits all, and different people are energized by different kinds of styles of working and really make it much more about the results rather than the process. So the way it's worked for me is I've been lucky that in all the industries I've worked in, including not least journalism, you are judged by your results, not by how you got there. And so for me, it's a mind shift rather than there's a couple of tricks that you can employ of that. And if that makes any sense. It totally, it totally does. And Talk to us about the kind of expansion plans that Zap has and the kind of different roles that you're hiring for as well. Because, you know, if you're on the website and there's, you know, you've got hundreds of kind of positions 
um, available and open. So it'd be great to hear about some of the roles that you're directly hiring for in, in particular on that. But also um, talk us through the actual expansion plans because it looks like judging by your careers page uh, there looks like a a lot of cities that you're moving towards yeah i mean we um we're definitely expanding i would say that we're unlike some of the, the competitors we're definitely much more concentrated on trying to win some key mega cities initially right so you'll see that we're you know, we've completely doubled down on London. I don't know if you were around in the summer, but we had huge um, sort of advertising campaigns right across London. Yeah. We sponsored the Wireless Festival, sponsored All Points East, we were sponsored with Chelsea FC Football Club, trying to build that sort of cultural relevance with our customers. So we're very, very focused on, on trying to win London, which is a huge convenience market. I think it makes up about half the convenience retail market of the UK alone. Um, so... That's definitely a main focus. And then we're also doing incredibly well in Amsterdam, which is obviously another big city. Um, in terms of the roles that we're recruiting for, look, we play at the intersection of e-commerce and, and logistics. So it's like a technology and logistics company. So as you can imagine, we're hiring you know, operational roles in, from logistics backgrounds, obviously continually trying to recruit and retain the best riders for the last mile delivery aspect, and then um, building out our technology and product teams. That's definitely a focus for the next uh, six months, year, because um, as we scale, we need to be able to continue to, to deliver a great customer experience. And we can do that best by augmenting really great, primarily in-house sort of technology and, and customer experience through, through how we deliver that through software, right? So it's, yeah, it's definitely like logistics, technology product roles primarily. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, I would say to anyone who's thinking about applying or joining, you know, this is a company that's like growing fast, super energized, but also has attracted, you know, a really great level of talent from massively experienced operators who have been there and done it before. to really, really bright, enthusiastic and super quick learning um, people at the earlier stages of their career. And um, yeah, it's, it's, as I say, it's been the best move that I've made. And, you know, I've been around the block, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's really, really inspiring to, to hear. And I mean, what's the kind of, you know, to use a bit of BC slang, you know, the sort of the SAM, the, but more the, the TAM total addressable market and this, you know, it's groceries at the moment, but presumably you think it could be so much more as well. Yeah, no, so it's a bit to be to be more clear. So we play within um within convenience retail, right? Which mm. is a subset of the grocery industry as a whole. Convenience retail in the UK, I think, is by some estimates worth forty five billion pounds. I think around half of that is London. And where we fit in right now today is when you want something or you need something instantly. So that can be anything from, you know, drinks, snacks, essential groceries, over-the-counter medicine, baby products, when it makes a difference to have it, you know, within minutes. Um, so that's urgent need and spontaneity. That's where Zap fits in today. Now, to do that, behind that, you know, that bottle of wine, 
that arrives in minutes or that, that bag of potato chips is a huge investment we're making into an entirely new type of supply chain. So that's operating our local fulfillment centers or, or dark stores or zap stores. That's our huge London distribution center that enables us to replenish the same day or interday replenishment. So if we know, I don't know, uh, our store in Shoreditch is going to run out of hardened dust, right? We can get it replenished the same day so it never does run out of hardened dust, right? That's something that, that um, and, until you build your own infrastructure, you just can't do. We're like on a wholesalers coming around to you maybe the next day or later in the week, right? So we're building, we're on a sort of 10 or 20 year journey to build an entirely new type of supply chain that can be the most efficient scalable and a sustainable supply chain capable of getting people what they want when they need it within minutes and potentially for millions of customers around the world. And so that's the mission we're on. Um, but it really is a long, long-term journey. And again, it's so interesting to see how much money is being deployed and raised within this broad sector. But also, I'm lucky enough to be on the inside and seeing where the money's going and that balance between what I mentioned earlier, the short-term thinking survival versus the long-term thinking and investment. And unlike a lot of consumer-facing companies that broadly call themselves tech companies, we're actually building genuine infrastructure that will hopefully pay dividends further down the line. Um, and that's super exciting. Yeah. I can see. And I, I would never accuse you of being part of the Metropolitan Elite, but ha- Shoreditch running out of Hagendas just strikes fear of fear of God into people. <laughs> but it's <laughs> it's so much like it's because there is quite a lot sometimes written about, you know, well, why why is so much money going into kind of grocery delivery and so on, you know, about trying to get, you know, wine five minutes quicker and, and so on. But actually like the story of yourself and so on you know this this could be a is a crucial supply line as you say that is you know is yet to exist that is being created which can be a huge help to people yeah no absolutely and that was one of the reasons why not necessarily why i joined zap but why as a journalist i took an instant sort of interest and liking to the sector so i previously because i'd been at tech for so long you know i was one of the first, if not the first, journalists to cover delivery, right? So yeah. I'd done the kind of takeout marketplace wars. I'd covered every single one of those early takeout companies um, and that marketplace gig economy, economy model. And then the sort of the other comparison is, do you remember when all the e-scooter rental companies sort of blew up? Yes. And, you know, and that was another sort of parallel people were comparing that to the, to the takeout marketplace type um, companies in the way how much you know venture capital went into that industry and that was a very sort of land grabby kind of kind of um playbook and then what attracted me to this new generation of on-demand delivery companies of which i would include zap is that we you know we we shunned the gig economy model we employ yes. our riders direct we're trying to build a company that is environmentally more sustainable from the get-go so we have an all-electric fleet of riders and we're doing other things around food redistribution so we partner with Odeo who was on your show um mm. recently so it's about saying you know if you're building something from scratch like there's an opportunity to not just build 
but build something better than, than, it's, than what has gone on previously. And when I say that, I don't just mean better for customers and for, for you know, having a product market fit, but also saying that if you're building something brand new, like what, would it, what should and what could it look like in, in 2021 or now 2022, right? And that was interesting also seeing this, this evolution of moving away from gig economy to directly employed riders, as I said, some of the stuff around sustainability. And what's fascinating about the rider element is we're not just employing riders because it's perhaps the right thing to do, which maybe you can argue it is, and there are people that are fans of the gig economy and people that are not. But also, we believe that in the end, they are the most customer-facing part of the business, right? So yeah. they need to be fully aligned with the business. And the way to do that is to employ um, employ our riders directly and make them proper members of our team. And that was definitely another thing that attracted me um, to the space. It's the best marketing that you can use, right? Is that customer experience at the at the door. And all the vehicles like all the vehicles are electric and so on as well, right? I mean that's that's yeah. another aspect that kind of um yeah really really stuck with me as well. So you've had such a like varied career. You've you've done your own startup. You've been in journalism. You're now joining a rapidly scaling company. But if you were 22 in 2022, where do you think you'd be looking? Which sectors would be taking your interest? Where do you think a, a young Steve O'Hare would be looking to get into? So I suspect the young Steve O'Hare would be just like I was back in the day, which is not quite sure about what I wanted to do. Um, maybe, I mean, it's ironic. I did always want to be a journalist, but I didn't become a journalist initially at all. I worked as, a, as I, I taught, I, I built my own website, little partnership, blah, blah, blah. And I kind of hacked my way into employment because I found it very difficult to land a job after I graduated, despite having a good degree. Um, it was very hard to break that catch 22 of you're, you're pretty severely disabled. So you don't really have any work experience, but how do you get a job without work experience, right? It's that classic kind of um, chicken and egg problem. So I think 22 and 22, I would definitely be attracted towards tech and industries that are more open to different ways of working and letting people kind of develop, you know, their own sort of soft skills. And I think if I could tell myself anything, it'd be that soft skills around communication, um, around analysis, um, around challenging assumptions and asking the right questions can get you ahead of a long way. <laughs> yeah. As, as I think I've proved. Um, and, you know, people talk about imposter syndrome. I was lucky. I never really suffered from that. I think that's where being disabled helped quite a lot because I didn't really have like role models to compare to. So I never felt like an, an imposter because there was, there was only, I mean, who was I going to pretend to be, right? So, it, yeah. you know, definitely I think too many young people, too many, People, not just young people, people even in further in their careers seem to suffer from that. And it, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fallacy, I think. That's, yeah, really interesting. Well, I mean, what more can we do to kind of get disabled people into work? You know, because the, the unemployment rate for disabled people is twice the national average and so on. What more can be done? You talked about role models there, which is, I, I think it's a really interesting observation. What what more can be done? Yeah, no, I see. I think um, obviously it starts with education, right? So 
I was very lucky. My dad fought really hard for me to go to the local mainstream school um, before we moved to London. When we moved to London, he purposely moved us into an area of London back in the, in the late 80s that was really good for integrated education. So I think it's about getting disabled kids into good, good schools with, with high expectations. I think there's around disability when you're young, there's quite a lot of like low expectations. So parents, teachers, uh, public services don't really expect much of you. And I was lucky that my dad made it very clear. I was going to have to use my brain and get to uni and <laughs> make, my, make my own way in the world. But then beyond that, what employers can do is, I think, two things. Disabled people often lack work experience because of all the disadvantages that I kind of just alluded to. And it's quite hard to get work experience when, if you think about when you're young, a lot of work experience is quite physical. So yeah. if you have a physical disability, you're a bit stuck there. Obviously, I think the internet and the advent of the, um, you know, of the information economy has helped with that. Um, but I definitely think it's like give people some work experience, take a chance. And also beyond that, um, you know, it comes back to what I said earlier about how a company should approach all employees, which is really think about how you set people up for success. So really think about and ask the question, you know, what can I do for you as an employee to help you succeed within our company, our culture? And I think when you do that, it can be very simple things, like ensuring they have the right type of software to help to mitigate some of their access needs or ensuring if they have to work more from home, they're not, you know, kept out of the loop of opportunities just because they're not down the pub after work. It's yeah. all sorts of soft, soft things as well as sort of hard processes. Um, and I think also ensuring that you really are like making the test of an employee of getting, getting something done, like results driven. So for me, I'm so like I said earlier, in every industry I've worked in, it's all been about like judging me by the results, not how I get there. Um, and I think that, again, that's a mentality of tr trusting your employees. But it's not just trust like, hey, go away and get on with it. It's about like, hey, like, I trust you to figure out the best way of achieving X and being clear what X is. And as I say, just setting people up for success. And I think the, the bit where I think a lot of the sales people struggle with once they enter the workplace is that there's so much onus when you're disabled on having to ask for help or ask for things to be adjusted or done differently. And that takes a lot of like, you know, psychologically that's quite difficult to do sometimes because you yeah. don't want to have this perception of I'm adding extra requirements to, you know, I'm like a, a burden of resources because I need a bit of, a bit of help navigating something slightly differently. And I know, like I've been super lucky. Like I remember at TechCrunch when they put me on stage for this big tech conference, they do disrupt. So the first time I'd been asked to present at Disrupt. And I remember I was so focused on preparing for the interview, you know, doing my job as a journalist. Like I was like obsessing about it for days. Mm. And I remember I got there and I was like, oh, right. Oh, fuck. Like I never asked if there was a ramp to get to the stage. Right. And yeah. it's like, you know, it sounds so simple, but I didn't see a ramp. I'd been there for a day. And I was like, oh my God, like, I really messed this up. And then they were like, oh, don't worry. So we've got like engineers coming in this evening, they're building a ramp for you for the next day. And, you know, again, it's about that, isn't it? That fourth, yeah. fourth thought to like be inclusive, but not inclusive in a fluffy sense of the word, but be inclusive by actually thinking, how do I set you up 
to succeed. Because if you're successful, then by virtue, the company is going to be more successful as a whole. If you could go back in time to any point in history for 24 hours to witness it, when and where would you choose? <laughs> um, oh, my word. That is a hard one. <laughs> uh, I think, listen, I'm a massive, like, soul, blues, funk, blues, rock, you name it, fan. So I think it would have to be music-orientated. So I yeah. guess you're talking very, very late 60s up to kind of 1975. I, have the, I used to have this theory. So I was born in 1975. And my, when I was a real sort of music, I guess, diehard, maybe a bit blinkered, my theory was that all good music stopped being made the day I was born. So I think it's late 60s, <laughs> early 75. <laughs> Brilliant. And so to do a few quick fires uh, now, just to, just to finish off with, um, Monzo or Starling? I'm like, you cannot come on, that's so unfair. <laughs> Just for the context of the listeners, I know both the founders pretty well, covered those companies, both of them forensically for years. Right? I think I was the first person to get access to review Alan Bowden's book. Like, there's a lot of history between those two companies. There is. Um, yeah, no, I'm you, not, you, I can't you, do that yeah, one. Okay. I'm sorry. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, Bitcoin or Ethereum? Favourite takeaway? I've eaten so much takeout over the last month. It's unbelievable. Um, I'm going to even name a brand, Pfizer, the pizza place. Big on Pfizer. Okay. Or Pfizer, yeah. What was in your last Zap order? Last Zap order? Um, oh, my word, it's been so... Again, I've absolutely <laughs> dined out on Zap. Um, last Zap order, it was uh, ibuprofen for my girlfriend right. at one thirty in the morning. Oh, well, that's a, that's an example of where it's incredibly useful. Um, what is the best business podcast that you listen to that you'd recommend to people, aside from this one, obviously? Oh, my gosh, that's right. Is, well. is there an episode of one that particularly sticks with you, perhaps? I'm just trying to remember the name of it. I think maybe, maybe you mentioned it in a, in a tweet. What's the one that had Tom... Bromfield from Monzo on the other day. Oh, Diary, Diary, the Diary of a CEO, Stephen yeah. Bartlett, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was fascinating because I've known all, probably all of those stories in various versions, and it's fascinating to hear, you know, a founder sit down for, was it over an hour, I think yeah. it was, being, being pretty candid about the challenges, but also it was a bit like when I read Anne Bowden's book. Like, I, I knew that, I knew versions of a lot of those stories, and I think one of the amazing things about hearing founders when they open up and tell their story, but also hearing from other sources as only a journalist can do or someone who's very tapped into industry is, you know this, right? Like history isn't really told. It's not like one story, is it? Yeah. It's like different people's memories and perspectives. And there isn't really a single truth when you have something like a five-year journey of a company that goes as fast and as you know as successful as monzo is there's there's so much nuance and gray areas and and way people remember things and process things i, I think is fascinating so yeah that was an amazing episode it, it is it's a, a reflection i have about i mean it is interesting just the amount of content that is being created in the world and so off you know the the old churchill quote of you know, history will be kind to me because I intend to write it. It's just 
that doesn't ring true in the modern world anymore and so many people will have their say but also when you're doing something like building that scale up or whatever i remember my time from number 10 we talk about it now with some of the other advisors is that you're so sleep deprived at the time that actually your memories don't kind of form correctly and it's it can be quite hard to um to sort of process that but yeah it is it is an amazing episode because we've had Anne Bowden on the show and her book banking on it is is brilliant and yeah this episode with Tom I keep trying to persuade Tom to come on come on Jimmy's jobs hopefully we'll get we'll get there he's going to talk about being an angel investor maybe but um it's um yeah, it's it's really interesting because actually you can look at Monzo and you can think what an amazing brand, you know, how well it's done, etc. All those things are true, but you don't see the kind of the the toll that it takes on people to get to that that level. Um and that's Yeah, no, absolutely. And they actually they're they're fascinating because they the timing of the pandemic and how that intersected with the timing of them trying to raise a funding round, they they just I mean, they were really hit hard by time by timing so they were going out to the market trying to raise around the pandemic struck every investor paused whether they said it publicly or not paused and said we're just going to wait and see how this thing's going to shake out um and meanwhile you know one of monzo's main revenue streams at the time was just interchange fees on card spend everybody stopped traveling you make more interchange fees abroad than you do in the uk um, they were just, and then the base rate, you know, Bank of England base rate super low. So they were just caught in such a bad place. And I remember I broke stories on Monzo around furloughs, around shutting their Las Vegas customer support office. You know, I started writing bad news stories about a company that I've, I've been very close to. Um, and it's been amazing because they, they've turned it around. They're in a great position again. Meanwhile, Stalin, sorry, different story, story did really, really well out of the pandemic. I don't mean that in a insensitive way, mm. but they jumped on the government's, you know, business loan scheme. And they had been very fortunate that they had developed a really quite good um business banking product and SMEs are served so badly by banking. So it is a very interesting sort of comparison of how Stalin seemed to do quite well out of the pandemic. Again, as as insensitive as that sounds, and Monzo were caught at the worst possible time yeah but hey we're both doing really well today for exactly the challenges of entrepreneurship um steve it's been so good to have you on and we will be watching the grocery delivery services with fascination because there's so much happening in the space and it really appreciate you coming on and, and giving an insight into what's happening in that world but but also your story as well and how you got there thanks so much jimmy it's been it's been great to chat As I said, that would be a fascinating conversation with Steve, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you are interested in me coming in and speaking to your organisation about the various things that we've learned on this podcast, how you motivate top teams, how you recruit and retain the best talent in the midst of the great resignation, I've recently gone in and spoken at organisations like Microsoft and the National Farmers Union, so quite differing styles there. But nevertheless, get in touch with me and the team at hello at jobsofthefuture.co and we can talk about how I might be able to come in and help your organisation organise the most important thing, which is their talent and their people. If you're curious to try out Zap, 
then you can do so and you can also use a discount code that's being given to Jimmy's Jobs listeners. We're not making any money out of this. We're just trialling it for future uh, potential promotional episodes. But you can get £10 off when you spend £20 by using the code ZAPJIMMY at checkout. I hope you enjoy.